Being in your 20s is one of the best and worst periods of your life that you can be in. You're old enough to start panicking about needing to figure out your life, like your career and your relationships, but you're still young enough that you can try new things and focus on genuinely just having a good time. This period of your life is also so interesting because everyone you know is doing something different. I have friends applying to grad school. I have friends potentially moving out of the country. I have friends who are married, getting engaged, people who are popping out kids. And all of that's all right. There's no right or wrong about what you should be doing with your life during this time because we're all on our own journeys. That said, life comes at us all fast. And I wanted to start this podcast to be a space to press pause. During each episode, I'm going to reflect on the lessons learned from my life talking about my experiences. And I'm hoping that some of these topics are things that folks can relate to. Overall, I just hope to create a space where everyone can take something away from each episode, whether it's a laugh, a cry, or a little bit of inspiration. And maybe occasionally some good advice, or maybe you'll think it's horrible advice. We'll see. But that's just to give a little bit of context about the purpose of this podcast overall. But before I dive into a bunch of different topics and lessons learned, I think I need to share with you all a little bit about my own story, about how I came to this point where I've been reflecting so much on my life and the decisions I've made, the things that have happened to me. And if the name of the podcast is any indication, the lessons that I've learned from the chaos that is this year, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. But to take a step back, in December 2022, when I finished my grad program while working full-time, I figured that now that I was done with gritting and grinding all day, every day basically, I could dedicate more of my time to just having a blast and figuring out what I wanted to do long-term with my life. At least that was my plan. But the universe, as it does, had other ideas. I like to joke that my bad luck all started with a black cat. After finishing grad school, I took a week off of work to go sit on the beach in San Diego with my partner at the time. Um, My plan was to let my brain be numb, throw a football round and eat some really delicious tacos, all of which I did. And it was honestly just what I needed to recover from the complete and absolute burnout I was feeling at the time. I'd had a period of where I was working crazy amount of hours at work. On top of that, I was, you know, in the last semester of grad school, during my capstone. It was a really intense period that mentally and emotionally drained me. Um, I was just completely burnt out. And, you know, I felt more like myself after that trip. I was looking forward to coming back, spending more time with my family, spending more time with my friends, really figuring out my next steps on life. Anyways, we'll get to how that all changed a little bit later. But, you know, the first, the first sign of everything kind of going downhill was, On the flight back, the airline tried to sit me next to a cat. Um, For context, I am deathly allergic. As soon as I'm near one, my eyes and my throat swell up. Um, Really just can't breathe. Like, I cannot be near one. Luckily, you know, another passenger was willing to switch with me so that way I wouldn't have an allergic reaction because the flight crew did not care. I said, you know, that if they sat me next to the cat, they were going to have to ground the flight for a medical emergency that I would surely have moments into the flight. And they just weren't doing anything about it. Um, And, you know, looking back, that was such a minuscule inconvenience compared to 
how everything would go up in flames the next day and, you know, stay up in flames for the foreseeable future. It's kind of funny, you know, looking back, what I actually remember about that time. I remember the flight. I remember the cat incident. Um, I remember going to bed and the next day, everything changing. But I genuinely, you know, of all things, I genuinely can't remember the last time I heard my dad's voice before he wasn't able to use it again. I know the last time I saw him in person before his accident was Thanksgiving. I know his last text to me was asking what he should get my then partner for Christmas, as it was just a few days away at the time. But I can't remember the last time we spoke. I got a call the morning after I landed from my mom, frantic, you know, naturally, very frantic, saying my dad had been rushed to a hospital with a broken neck. In those moments, you don't really have time to think. You just act. You just do. Instinct kicks in and you just do what you need to do. My brother, who lived at the time in an apartment across from me, had also just gone back in town the night before. You know, both both of us were kind of disoriented, trying to figure out what was happening. So he and I rushed out to the hospital to hear, you know, straight from the doctors what had happened, how my dad was. We knew that the night before, my dad had been with his college group of friends, who are honestly a testament to our friendships enduring the test of time. Because at this point, they'd been friends for nearly 50 years. You know, like he met them his freshman year, sophomore year of college at various points. And he was with this group um, the night of this accident that led him to go to the hospital as they frequently still got together and hung out. You know, they're like an extended family to us. And he went, um, what had happened was he went to leave one of their houses and it was sleeting that night. You know, it was late December, a few days before Christmas. And he slipped on the gravel and his neck broke upon impact. Um, My dad had a condition where his joints around his neck were fused. So as soon as he hit the gravel, his neck just snapped. The neurosurgeon at Howard, uh, where he'd been rushed by the paramedics, told my brother and I upon arrival that the only option to ensure he not become a paraplegic was to perform a risky emergency surgery on his spine. Honestly, at that point, we were just so relieved thinking, okay, this is horrible that it happened, especially so close to the holidays. But they'll do surgery and he'll be fine. And we're just so grateful that he's alive. We were still looking on the bright side at that point, thinking it was a miracle that his friends had discovered him after falling and that he'd gone to the hospital in time for them to be able to stabilize and operate on his spine. We didn't know yet how wrong we were. We were thinking, you know, the worst is behind us. There are several days that I rank among the worst days of my life. You know, that was one of them. And then, obviously, the day, spoiler, that my dad eventually died. Um, Another one when we buried him. But one of the most, I think, traumatic is the fifth day he was spent in the hospital in the SICU, the surgical intensive care unit. You learn all sorts of fun terms like that when you spend a prolonged amount of time in a hospital room surrounded surrounded by surgeons, nurses, and machines. Another thing I learned is that the fifth day a patient is in the SICU is referred to by the residents as the perfect storm, as it tends to be where everything goes wrong post-op. At this point, my dad still hadn't regained consciousness and had undergone several more surgeries, the first of which was a tracheotomy, 
Um, essentially, this is where they insert a breathing tube directly into his throat. Like, imagine where a guy's Adam's apple is. They insert a tube directly into their, um, and then hook them up to a machine that breathes for them because there was a fear of his airways collapsing due to his neck breaking and being super swollen and his lungs still being weak post-surgery. The second was a feeding tube inserted into his stomach to ensure he received the nutrients his body needed while he was healing as he obviously couldn't eat foods or drink any liquids and you can only be on um, like IVs and feeding tubes so long as that doesn't have all the nutrients you need. So while he still needed intensive care up until the fifth day, he was considered relatively stable. So this was a few days before New Year's. We spent that day literally about 10 hours um, that fifth day shuffling between my dad's hospital room and waiting room throughout the whole day as we'd go into his room and he'd be stable and then he'd start to crash. Like his blood pressure would just completely crash or would completely rise. Um, It was kind of a tricky situation because if they gave him one medicine to try to keep him from stroking out um, because his blood pressure would go so high in the quickest instant, um, it would then lead to his blood pressure completely plummeting. And, you know, it's so difficult in those moments for the doctors to figure out what right combination will help stabilize the patient again when he's reacting so sensitively to the medicine. And they really couldn't figure out, you know, why he was reacting so sensitively. Um, And so if you've read, kind of a side note, if you've read Matthew Perry's memoir, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, um, ironically, I was reading this book at the time in the hospital as kind of a way to pass the time. Uh, Well, then you know the only two types of withdrawal that can kill you are benzodiazepines, not even sure if I'm saying that right, and alcohol. And the doctors discovered, much to my family's shock, (laughs) that for my dad, the reason that this fifth day post-op, you know, was the perfect storm is that's the day you receive, you start receiving those really horrible symptoms of withdrawal um, and your body just goes into shock. Um, And then in addition to that, he has so many other medicines in his system that were interacting with his body and it was just kind of a horrible mess. As I said, he was either nearly stroking out with how high his blood pressure was or plummeting um, to where his blood pressure was so low it was scary. He basically could not be left alone. Like someone was monitoring him every second that day. And there were several times um, where we just had to leave the room, you know, throughout the day and go in the waiting room and wait for them to say they had it back under control. And that was just such a horrific feeling. You know, every time we left the room, we weren't sure whether or not he was going to make it or not. And, you know, there would be many more days during my dad's stay in the SICU where I wouldn't be sure whether my dad was going to make it through the day or not. But that was the first time that the shock of, oh shit, he might not make it out of here, hit me. And then I began to be propelled into dealing with a varying host of emotions, including, you know, grappling with the hurt around the drunken circumstances that led to his accident. You know, the frustration of all the decisions and logistics, both medically And, you know, just keeping the household running for my mom that were falling on my brothers and my shoulders. And, you know, 
paramountly the fear that I may never see my dad open his eyes again. Because at this point, he'd been unconscious, you know, for five days. Like, it was quite scary. Um, And, you know, in the coming months, there's a bit of a roller coaster. We'd watch my dad continuously fight and take three steps forward just for him to always take five steps back, you know, be pushed five steps back from various, for various reasons, either from battling kidney failure to sepsis to lung and heart failure, often, you know, all at the same time. Um, I'll get into more in the next episode, you know, the duration of his stay and kind of how intense it was and all the ups and downs. Um, but yeah, the first, the first week, I want to say the first week was the hardest, but I think the first week gave us all us being my mom, my brother and I, and our whole family, you know, that shock really shocked us into reality of this isn't just going to be, you know, a week in the hospital and he comes home after new year's. This is going to be a prolonged stay in the ICU. We don't know when or if he's going to recover. You know, we're just trying to make do and figure out what next steps are, you know, we're just trying to see if he made it through that fifth day. And then after that, my brother and I were supposed to go back to work, which we did, but we had to start making those long-term plans with our managers of just making them aware of like, hey, this happened. Um, and it would get to the point where, you know, for the most part, I'd go to work and then I'd go from work to the hospital. And sometimes I'd leave work early to go to the hospital and then log back on. Like we did what we needed to do to balance everything in our lives. And we were just doing our best to live our normal lives while also being there for our dad. And I think it's something where you don't really realize that you're functioning in this like survival state. And it's just really hard when you're in those moments to know what's right or wrong. The only thing that we have, you know, to go off of, or like, the only thing we kind of figured to do was at some point go back to work and, you know, go be there for my dad every waking hour that we could. Um, and obviously my mom would go there every day and be there with him during the day. And then my brother, and I would go there at night, um, oftentimes both of us. So we were just trying to make sure that my dad was alone as little as possible um, once he was awake because, you know, he didn't have any uh, you know, the first few days he's awake, he didn't really have any cognitive skills. And then following that, he didn't have any mobility. Like he broke his neck. He couldn't exactly sit up in bed. He couldn't move around. He couldn't speak because of the tracheotomy. Like he had this pipe in his throat. He could not speak. And even, you know, at the time they're explaining once they took it out, he would have had to undergo severe speech therapy to relearn use of his vocal cords from the extensive damage that was experienced from breaking his neck. So there was just a cacotomy of things that were going on of, you know, us managing him being in the hospital and trying to be there for him while trying to, you know, do our best at both. My brother and I had very intensive jobs. Um, You know, like I was on a small team where my presence was really felt if I wasn't there. He had a very intense job. 
we're just trying to make sure that nothing fell through the cracks because that's how we're wired. Um, both of us are wired in the sense of you just keep going. Like you don't slow down. Um, and so that's what we did. And honestly, I'm so lucky for my friends and my extended family and, you know, so grateful to the people that were there for my brother as well to support him during this time um, because they really helped us through. But that said, you know, these kind of things, you know, tragedies like this really bring out someone's true colors. And separately from everything that was happening, you know, me trying to still perform at work and me trying to be there for my dad and emotionally kind of uplift my mom and all of that. I was also secretly unbeknownst to any of my family or friends fighting another battle at the time. Um, my partner, I guess we should give him a name. I just keep saying my partner at the time. Um, let's call him Charles. Charles and I had been together at this point for about four and a half years and he'd been to nearly every family holiday event during this time. You know, we would swap out like Thanksgiving at his place in the morning and then at mine, like my parents in the afternoon. Um, and he was, you know, even close to my dad. He'd gone to a Caps game one-on-one with my dad just weeks before his accident. He actually saw my dad in person more recently than I had um, before his accident. On paper, he was a part of the family, but his actions during this period just proved he was anything but that. There's a few distinct memories that stick out more than the rest, just to give you a taste of how he acted, particularly during the first few weeks my dad was in the hospital when, you know, we weren't sure what was going to happen at all. And as a bit of background, Charles and I were living together in an apartment at the time. But a few days after my dad was admitted into the hospital, a pipe burst, you know, of course, of course, a pipe burst. Why not? Um and it flooded our whole living room and bedroom and it rendered it uninhabitable naturally until repairs could be made. Like the carpets needed to be torn up. The walls needed to be fixed. Um, we were told it would take, you know, at least a month. I was already staying with my mom at the time um, just because I was driving her every day to the hospital. And then I was staying there even when I went back to work. But this made it so Charles also needed to stay with his parents Um, but that was only about a 15 minute drive from my parents' house. So I thought we would still see quite a bit of each other during this time. Um, I was proven wrong because remember how I said the fifth day of my dad being in the hospital was one of the worst days of my life. Well, that was further compounded with the fact that on my drive home, I did break down crying. I think the intensity of the day just caught up to me. Um, my brother was driving home my mom and I was in the car alone. And I just, I needed someone to hear me out. You know, I couldn't show weakness to my family. I, and I know that sounds ridiculous now saying I couldn't show weakness. We were all going through the same thing, but I was trying to keep it together for my mom. I was trying to keep it together for our extended family who were giving updates. Hell, I was trying to keep it together for myself because as long as I felt, as long as I kept it together, everything would be okay. So I think this was really the first time I had cried since my dad had been admitted. I think this was the first time that I broke down and I called, you know, what was supposed to be or who I thought was going to be the love of my life. You know, the person I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And I relate to him how scary the day had been 
I asked if he could come over and just be with me, even if it's just for a little bit, you know, it was like 7 p.m. at night. I, you know, was like, maybe we can like order in food and watch something. I just wanted to feel normal. I wanted, you know, to just calm down and have a normal night. Um, and, you know, I was told I can't, I have work tomorrow morning, which I understand life goes on and people have responsibilities. As I said, I went back to work after the new year and I was trying to juggle all that. But I am the kind of person that if the roles were reversed, I would be at your house in an instant. I wouldn't blink to be wherever you needed, whenever you needed it, you know, to emotionally support someone, you know, whether they be my friend, a coworker, let alone, you know, the person who was my partner at the time, you know, like we'd been together so long. I thought they were my best friends. Like I thought he was my best friend. I thought he was going to say, of course, and you know, come hold me in his arms and comfort me the way I just really wanted to be comforted in that moment. And instead he just kind of shut me out and couldn't offer that emotional support. And a few days later, something similar kind of happened. After my dad had regained consciousness, I called him sobbing on my way home once again because, you know, I don't know why. I tended to kind of break down the, those car rides home quite a bit. became kind of a habit of, I think, just having the silence of those car rides. I could think about everything that was happening and just break down Um and that was another particularly tough day. While my dad was finally awake, he didn't really have any cognitive awareness the first few days when he regained consciousness. He was kind of like a zombie. His eyes were glazed over. Um, you know, he wasn't able to speak still because of tracheotomy. He was so pale, really just a shell of the man that I grew up with. And, you know, the cherry on top was he clearly had no recognition in his eyes of who my brother or my mom or I even were. Um, you know, he was still in and out of consciousness through that day, but, you know, while we were relieved, his eyes were open and that was a positive sign. I would not wish that on anyone looking into the eyes of someone you love and them having no recognition of who you are, you know, that, it's just a pain that I cannot put into words. Um, and, you know, I know there's so many people out there with Alzheimer's and dementia, and my heart goes out to all of their families. I don't think I'd have the fortitude to be able to handle that um, on a long-term basis because that just, you know, it broke me. And I'm not really, prior to this, someone who has ever leaned on others for emotional support, but you know, I was just feeling so devastated from this. I didn't know if he was ever going to recognize us again. You know, the doctors were saying that his cognitive um, recognition would come back. And then it was just a mixture of, you know, the impact, all the medicine he was on and everything else. But we didn't know that for certain. Like as much as I wanted to have hope and belief that he would be okay, there are no guarantees. He was still in the sick you. Like anything could go wrong at any moment. You know, every night I went to bed terrified that when I woke up, 
he'd be gone or that we'd get a call in the middle of the night and something would have happened. You know, that was every night that he was there. And, you know, to just be told, I can't talk. I have work tomorrow morning by my partner in that moment just left me feeling even more devastated, more hurt of not only am I going through this, I'm going through this alone. And as I said, like, I have, you know, my brother and my mom were also going through it, but I wasn't trying to put any more of my emotional burden onto them. You know, I wasn't trying to lean on them more than I had to. Like, I was trying to be strong for them. And this was the one person I thought I could be vulnerable with. I thought I could lean on and they just were not there. After hearing this, I bet you're like, why the heck did you stay with Charles despite this behavior? And you're probably also wondering, aren't you supposed to be telling us the lessons learned from all of this instead of just recounting your life story? Well, first of all, it's incredibly tough to process, um, you know, these things while you're going through them or have any kind of perspective. You know, I was raised in a household where enduring more than you can handle and emotionally always being okay was a badge of honor. You know, at the time, it honestly didn't even occur to me to end things with him. You know, I knew this is messed up. This is hurting me. This is ridiculous that he's not there for me. But I didn't really have the mental capacity to do anything about it. I didn't have the emotional wherewithal to do anything about it. You know, I was already burning the candle at both ends. Not until his behavior got much, much worse. And he began to really kind of make it so my life was a living hell. You know, when I came home from the hospital, when I was home, did I start to really realize I needed to end things. Um, and, you know, when it comes to the lesson learned thing, at the time this was all happening, I hadn't learned a damn thing yet. It wasn't until months later, months after my dad died, that I was began to even process my emotions and reflect on what I learned. Um, and I have learned a lot from reflecting on this period of my life. And I'll share with you those kind of life lessons once you hear the rest of the story. If you are interested in hearing how everything panned out, then go to episode two, which is the second part of this. I would also like to slam, I know this is a very difficult topic. Grief is serious and it's something we don't really talk about in our society a lot and how it affects people. That said, this entire podcast will not be just about my grief. This has propelled me into a season of growth and change. I've made a lot of changes this year. I took a leave of absence from my job. I solo traveled. I started going on dates again. Whether I was ready to or not is a different story. Anyways, I also started going to therapy this year. Point being, I've had a lot of change in my life this year, and I've learned a lot of lessons from every decision I've made. Were they the right decisions? A lot of them weren't. I didn't always cope in the healthiest of ways. I didn't always cope in the right ways. But we're going to unpack all of it in later episodes. And hopefully I can share some lessons learned about what not to do. Because I've made these mistakes. I've made bad decisions. 
But that said, I've put in so much work into growing this year, into healing, into really reflecting on all of the decisions I've made. And now the tools to really make the right decisions moving forward and really be introspective about why I made these decisions and why you shouldn't make, you know, these type of mistakes in your own life. So listen along to later episodes because as I said, I've learned these lessons the hard way. So hopefully you don't have to.